Inflation, recession, stagflation, fiat currency, sound money, printing money out of thin air. If you listen to the news at all, some of these phrases have been used to describe what is going on, or describe what is not going on depending on what you intend to promote, especially if it describes the state of the U.S. economy. Just by themselves, those terms can start to get confusing. Add the redefinitions from the government, and all hope seems lost. Up is down, wet is dry, and hot is cold. It is little wonder most people get a glazed look of surrender in their eyes when the talk turns to money. My guest today is going to help break through that haze with a plain explanation of how currency comes into being and why creating more and more of it is not good for Joe Consumer, but dandy for the bankers. The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, episode 206. Welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Libertarian. Welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. Mike Meharry is my guest today. Mike has been on the show a couple of times, once to discuss libertarianism and once to discuss his book, Constitution, an owner's manual. Today, Mike joins me in his economics persona to discuss the steps in which currency is created and what that really means. If the topic of currency and money is new to you, this episode might have some terms that also seem new to you. I've done my best to keep this at an understandable level, first for me, but I acknowledge that the topic can get into the weeds pretty quickly. I think we've done a good job of steering through those weeds. Hello, Mike. Thank you for joining me. Again, on the Culinary Libertarian Podcast. Dan, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. It's going to be fun. It is going to be fun. It's going to be informative, and I hope that I get something out of this, because this is really confusing stuff. And listeners saying, what are you talking about? (laughs) So what we're going to talk about is to see if we can make plain the complicated Mm -hmm. business of the Fed and the Treasury and money and currency. It's, it's, yes. <laughs> people's brains are always starting to hurt. So, um, yeah, most everybody just turned off the podcast. So yeah, I got, that oh, wait, might be. yeah, I'm not doing no, this. Please one. don't turn it off because I really, I, I don't think people realize how important this is. You know, everybody gets so hung up on presidential politics and, and Democrat and Republican politics and this monetary policy stuff goes on behind the scenes, no matter who's in power. And, right. and really, I've said this before, I think the Fed is the engine that powers the most powerful and biggest government, arguably, in the history of the world. Without the, without the central bank, the Republicans and the Democrats would not be able to spend money to the level that they do, and they wouldn't be able to bloat 
the, the government in the way that they have. They would be naturally restrained by the restraints of money. And because they have a central bank, they both can uh, fund whatever programs they want. So, you know, a lot of times people want to blame everybody's like a finger pointing game, you know, oh, inflation is Biden's fault. No, Trump gave it to him. I mean, it, no, not really. It's it really, really goes to the central bank, no matter who's in power, that process is ongoing. So it's really important for people to understand it. Well, we go back to blame Hamilton, but that's for later on in the show. Before we get into this, and you and, and it's going to be it's going to be zesty, which is good. Uh, give our listeners, in case we have new ones, a bit of a brief bio about you, and then we'll kind of jump in here. Yeah. So um, I am a man with many hats. Um, I am the National Communications Director at the Tenth Amendment Center, TenthAmendmentCenter.com, T-E-N-T-H, uh, and so I do uh, a lot of the writing and and. Uh, uh, I do bill analysis, all kinds of stuff for the TAC. I am also uh, the editor of the Shift Gold website, which is shiftgold.com. And my part is shiftgold.com slash news. So I write, write regular commentary and analysis and news on what's going on with the Fed and, and investing in gold in the economy. Uh, so that's another hat. I have a podcast that I do through Shift Gold called the Friday Gold Wrap. Uh, every Friday talking about these subjects. And um, so those are the two, th- those are my two main gigs. You mentioned the politicians and I think I'm not entirely even sure where to begin because it seems just like this giant cycle when, and just there's just kind of like snake eating its own tail. There's no beginning or end, right? But politicians seem to be a good place to start with their promises to, give you more free stuff, more free stuff than the other guys. So vote for me because I'm going to, I'm going to give you stuff. And right. So, Oh, sure. I like free stuff. Why not? But I want to see if we can, I want to step back a little bit out of that, that cycle. And first let's talk about what is money. What, and and then compare that and contrast that to what is currency. Cause I think first of all, understanding that it isn't the same thing is really important. And, and maybe people don't know what is money and then what is currency. Yeah. All right. Well, I think first, even let's get more fundamental than that. I think the most important thing to, to realize is that having money, even real money, isn't wealth. We tend to think of money as wealth. Wealth is really stuff. Ultimately, Anytime you're talking about economics, it really comes down to stuff, producing stuff, consuming stuff. And by stuff, I mean not only physical products, but also services. Services kind of falls into the, uh, the category of stuff. So I can do a service for you um, that, that adds wealth. That is part of the pile of stuff. So we have all of this stuff. And you have some stuff and I have some stuff and I have the ability to make stuff and and my next door neighbor has the ability to make stuff. And so we're all going to be better off if we cooperate with each other and I supply stuff that I can do better to my neighbor and then my neighbor supplies stuff to me uh, that, that he can produce better. Uh, so you have this this basic exchange. So in any economy, you start off with basically barter. You know, um, Joe grows apples, Paul grows nuts. Uh, Paul 
wants some apples. So he goes to Joe and says, hey, I'll, I'll give you some nuts in exchange for apples. And they determine what the value is and they make the trade and, and both are end up better off. So now they both have some nuts and some apples. Um, but obviously there are limitations in a barter system, especially as you start moving farther, farther distances, right? You and I would have difficult trading apples and nuts because you're, you know, across on the other side of the country. So we develop this means of exchange that we call money. So really money is the means of exchange. It's not the stuff. It just kind of represents the stuff. And, and I guess more accurate, accurately, it represents our labor, uh, our production of something, whether it be a good or a service. So uh, as a society develops, money evolves naturally out of this, this barter economy. And people find things that they place a value on that pretty much everybody has some since that is valuable and they start using that to exchange instead of having to physically exchange nuts and apples so um you know it might be silver it might be gold uh, it might be seashells in a really primitive economy money can be anything that the society places some value on a commodity and so um you and i can now exchange goods because i can give you uh some pieces of silver in exchange for your goods that you have and vice versa. And then I can take that silver and I can go to somebody uh, in Maine and, and do business with them or go up the street. So it basically money is just a way to facilitate the exchange of stuff. And I really think <clears throat> the first place that people get kind of hung up and confused is they start to think of money as stuff. And it's not the same thing. Money just allows us to change stuff. So the reason that's important is that you can increase the amount of money. So I could go mine more gold out of the ground. Um, that doesn't change the m amount of stuff. So that's really the essence of inflation. When you ed uh, expand that supply of whatever it is that you're using as money without expanding the supply of stuff, the stuff becomes relatively more expensive because there's more of this money chasing the same number of goods and services. So. Then we need to counter, uh, counter distinguish money from currency. And money is a real thing that society has decided is going to be used as a means of exchange because it has some kind of value that everybody recognizes. So again, gold and silver historically have risen to the level of money. But we've seen other things in other cultures and other times. Tobacco has been used as money. Um, you know, in prison of war camp, cigarettes uh, or alcohol can become money. It's anything with value. Currency is kind of another step away. It's a, a, a promise to deliver the money, I guess is the easiest way to put it. So the way it kind of evolved is, you know, you've got a bunch of gold bars and it's kind of a pain in the butt to carry gold bars around. It's hard to make change with gold bars. So what people would do is they'd put their gold bars in a bank and the bank would say, oh, okay, we've got so many gold bars. I'm going to give you this certificate, this this money uh, that says that you have the right to this particular piece of gold or not this particular piece of gold, but, you, but this amount of gold that you have in the bank. So then people began just exchanging that currency instead of having to go to the bank, get the bar of gold out. They would actually just go and, and um, I would say, Hey, Dan, uh, I want to buy some donuts. And you say, Hey, I'd have some donuts. And I said, well, here, I'll give you this certificate. And now you have, the right to that gold that was previously mine because you have this certificate. 
So that's really what currency is. And really, currency isn't problematic until the bank starts issuing more currency than gold. And of course, that's a big temptation because they realize, well, you know, Mike's probably not going to show up to get the gold and Dan's not going to show up to get the gold. So we could print two of these dollars and then two people could do exchange uh, and, and we'll still have the gold. So, you know, if one of them comes back, we can give them the gold and then somebody else will deposit some gold. So everything will be fine. That's where you get in trouble with currency. The other issue with currency is that it can be easily reproduced, as I just said. And with that temptation comes along government. And government says, oh, we can print all kinds of this currency. And then they monopolize it. And they say, our currency is the only available currency. And pretty soon there's no gold at all. You know, the whole thing is just based on this, this notion that it has value because the government says it has a value and it has a monopoly on money. And, and so therefore, uh, you know, this note is legal tender is what it says on our Federal Reserve notes. They're backed by nothing. They have no intrinsic value other than the force of government. They're not natural money because they didn't evolve through a free market. They are imposed by a government. So that is where we are in today's monetary system. We have a currency based or uh, as most people call it, a fiat currency based, meaning it's not backed by anything, economy. And that allows the government to produce as much of this currency as it wants to. And then that brings us back to what I said before. If you mine gold, which obviously is an expensive and difficult process, you expand that supply of money without um, expanding the supply of goods and services. You end up with price inflation. Prices go up. When you take the gold out of the equation... I can run a printing press all day. You know, there's no cost at, well, not no cost, but well, today in digital terms, there really is no cost. I can just press a button and boom, there's more currency. So that is how we've gotten into a situation where in the last two years, the Federal Reserve has literally created $5 trillion of new money just out of thin air, um, you know, to cope with the pandemic. And if anybody is wondering, you know, why we're seeing these rising prices now, there's lots of factors in the economy, of course, but fundamentally, the reason that we're seeing price inflation now is because the Federal Reserve printed all these trillions of dollars and the federal government handed them out to people to spend and on, at the same time told them to stay home, don't work, they're not producing more goods and services. I could have told you, I did try to tell people two years ago that this was going to cause price inflation. And uh, now all of the powers that be around, oh, we never saw this coming. Yeah, you did. Come on, give me a break. So that's basic. That, that's your basic breakdown, I hope, in a relatively simple way of, of the difference between stuff, money, and currency. It is. And so we're going we're gonna to start way back at the apples and nuts guys. Anybody who thinks this through long enough or anybody who's growing apples and store them over winter realizes there's at least two big problems with using apples as a medium of exchange or as a store of value. One, apples taste good, so you can eat them. Now, you, you have fewer apples with which to exchange, and that can be a problem because maybe the guy with the nuts wants a dozen and you only have 11. Well, I had to have breakfast. The other problem with apples is they rot. So you can lose value because nature just destroys apples because that's what happens. Same thing with the nuts or the mice get them. Uh, the nice thing about gold and silver is 
Mice don't want to eat the gold and silver, and they last thousands of years. So, so we can see how something like gold and silver becomes a reasonable choice for an exchange of value and a store of value because you can't eat it and it won't go away. Yep, that's that. That's a perfect example. And and there are certain principles, certain fundamental things that uh, that are necessary for a commodity to become money. One of those things that you you just hit on is the fact that it needs to be relatively indestructible. You know, can't rot, can't be eaten, uh, it, it can't uh, it can't tarnish or not tarnish, but it can't rust away. And and of right. course, gold and silver both have those those fundamental principles. Um, they also have to have some type of again some type of intrinsic value, or they generally do. Um, so you know, gold. There are a lot of uses for gold beyond their use for money. It has value in and of itself. You can make jewelry out of it. People desire it because it's beautiful. You can use it in technology uh, because it has certain properties that that make it very good in terms of using it for electronics and science. So, so yeah, there are certain fundamental things that make something money. Uh, by the way, pieces of paper <laughs> do not qualify uh, under under the actual uh, definition of money. No, and so your your Mickey Mantle original is nice, but it's a piece of cardboard. Um, I think the other thing that's important to point out about a a feature of money is divisibility. So if the mm-hmm. apple guy and the nut guy say, "Hey, you know what? We don't want a cow, except I don't want the whole cow," and the farmer says, "Dudes, I can't divide the cow." <laughs> just so I can't give you a horn and a hoof, and I just. So there's a real problem with, so barter didn't work well all the time because there wasn't always that divisibility, whereas I can give you portions of pieces of gold and that works out well. Yeah. So this actually goes way back. I just pulled something up that, that's very relevant to this. Um, oh, okay. Aristotle actually listed four characteristics of sound money. Number one, must be durable. So that's talking about the fact that it cannot be destroyed. It must be portable. So, you know, uh, I can't use lead very easily for money because it's not very portable. It's too heavy. Um, It has to be divisible, as you just mentioned, and it has to have an intrinsic value. And, of course, gold possesses all of those characteristics, which is exactly why gold and silver have served as money for thousands of years. Um, It has all of those, those characteristics in spades. Now, other things can serve as money, you know, in depending on the circumstances and the culture and, and, but it won't last over time. So again, you know, they used tobacco in, uh, uh, in the South during the colonial period, uh, because there was a lot of it and, uh, you know, they could do some of those things. It was portable. They could divide it. Um, but it wasn't durable. So, uh, ultimately it never, you know, established itself as money forever. And again, I, I go back to the prison camps, cigarettes become a, uh, a, a, uh, means of exchange so different things can but the point is over time for money for something to remain money for the long term it needs to have those those four characteristics that aristotle told us right and that's that's good he was a smart guy yeah he was all right all right so now we're here in 2022 or 2020 or something relatively modern and pretty much everyone has I think probably heard the phrases of printing, printing money out of thin air. Right. Um, and, and that's, well, while technically probably not really true, there's, there's, it sounds like it's close enough to be true. So there's, 
it's not as easy as just going and picking apples and picking nuts and, and then writing IOUs saying I will give you 10 apples at some future date plus one for interest. Right. It gets a little bit more challenging. And where would you, in talking about, so we're talking about currency, first of all, we're not talking about money. And that's, right. let's make that plain. Where is a good place to start? Is Is the... So this is where it becomes, I think, a really slow walk. So there's right. the Treasury and the Fed, and they are they work together, but they're distinct organizations. Right. And one of them creates a bond. Oh, what in the heck is a bond, and how does is that a good place to start? Then, yeah, that's a good place. So let's let's do it this way. Let's let's start with just let's just start with government. Okay, we've got government. Um, and, and we'll use the U.S. federal government as, uh, as kind of our example, since we're most I'm, listeners I'm going to assume are probably in the United States. But this, is, this works the same for every modern developed economy. You've got a government, and the government needs to do things. Uh, you hit it right at the top of the show. Uh, you know, Politics has become... What can we give the people that are going to vote for us? So if it's going to give us stuff, it's got to spend a lot of money. And of course, uh, it's got to provide defense. Uh, it's got to provide welfare programs. It's got to build the roads, um, as, as many will quickly remind us. So there's all kinds of things that the government has to do. Well, the first problem for a government is it doesn't actually produce anything. So it doesn't have any resources of its own. It can't do any of the things it wants to do without appropriating resources out of the broader economy. So we have taxation. Governments exist on taxation. That's kind of the fundamental thing. So government comes along and says, okay, I'm going to do all of these things for you that are for the quote unquote common good. And so therefore we're going to take a certain amount of your income or the value of your property or however they decide to frame taxes um, and, and we're going to do that in order to provide these services. So we're going to take some money from Dan, and we're going to take some money from Mike. We'll take some money from the guy down the street, and we're going to use that money. We're going to build some roads, and we're going to provide some defense, and we'll give you a fire department and a school and, and all of these things at the various levels of government. So, okay, fine. That's, that's, uh, that's all well and good. Now, obviously, if, if it was just left at that, the government would be relatively limited in how much it can do because the people are only going to put up with so much taxation, right? Um, you might be able to sell people on you know 10%, uh, especially if you're providing good services. You, know, you get a good road out of it. And people are like, oh, yeah, that's fine. But you, know, you start getting too far into the taxes, people start to get mad because you know, you're cutting into their own well-being and their own ability to uh, live their own lives. So there's a limit to taxation. Taxation is actually a limiting factor in government. Well, you know, obviously, if the government's promising to do all of these things, it can't be limited by something like taxation. So what are we going to do? We're going to borrow money. Makes sense, right? We'll just, we'll borrow it. And then the future taxpayers can pay it back and, you know, we'll pay it over time. And then we can spread out that tax burden over, uh, you know, over many years. Uh, so the government borrows money using uh, bonds. So you, you mentioned this, uh, that's, that's kind of the, the primary way that government finances itself beyond taxation. It issues bonds. A bond is really just um, 
something. It's an investment tool. And if, if, you know, if it was just you and I might say, okay, Dan, I'm going to give you this. Um, you're going to give me uh, X number of dollars. And then I'm going to give you that amount back in five years plus interest. So um, I can use that money in the meantime, and then I have to pay you back you know, with interest when, when the term of the bond is up. Again, seems fine. You know, kind of hides the taxation a little bit, but it's still taxation. You might not be taxing me. I'm taxing my kids. Um, so that's the way that the federal government and every government uh, finances itself. It issues these bonds. And um, that's all well and good as far as it goes. But again, there's still a limiting factor there, right? I mean, if you start lending out too much money, you become a credit risk. It's just like anybody. You know, if if, if you and I were doing business and, and I had borrowed uh, $500 from you and then, you know, a month later I come back, hey, Dan, I'm going to borrow another $500. You might be, uh, okay. Um, then I come back to you the next month, hey, dude, I need to borrow another $500. And at that point, you're going to start getting antsy. And maybe you'll think, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this, but I'm going to up the interest because I'm taking on a little bit more risk. At some point, you're going to say, no, man, sorry, Mike, I'm cutting you off. Uh, you're, you borrowed too much. You're never going to be able to pay this back. Governments get in the same situation. I mean, they can only lend out so much money uh, before um, they become a credit risk and people become reluctant to lend out the money. So what can you do about that? Well, the easiest thing to do is to be able to just print the money. But in, in the United States, now some countries will actually do it. They'll literally go and turn on a printing press and print more money and shoot it out into the economy or the government will spend it in, into the economy and the government can do all of the things and then people deal with that inflation. Can't do that in the United States. The United States isn't allowed to just create that, that money out of thin air. So they do... Uh, they do it a little creatively. They create the central bank, the Federal Reserve. And so, you know, it's funny, you, you mentioned printing money. Facebook is actually fact-checking that. If you say printing money, they'll say, the federal government's not really printing money. You know, thank you, Facebook. Um, the reality of it, here's how it works. I'm going to give you the mechanism of how most government is funded today. And this is really, this is where it gets important, and I'm going to try to make it as simple as possible. The government is issuing bonds, treasuries, and they've issued a lot of them. We now have, what, $30 trillion in debt. Now, all of that is not issued in bonds. There's some stuff where the government basically owes itself money. And, but there's a significant amount. I looked it up uh, not too long ago, and it was something in the neighborhood of like 23 or $24 of that $30 trillion is actually um, outstanding bonds. All right. Let me, and, cut, let me interrupt you one second here. Of all those bonds, who's buying them? If, okay, if you're yeah. coming to me right. and you say, I want $500, and I say yes, then I say, well, uh, okay. And then at some point, you're right, I'm going to say no. Right. If there's $24 trillion worth of bonds, why are there still buyers? Who's buying these bonds? Right. And you are you are just about half a step ahead of me. Because you've you've hit the you've hit the problem the nail on the head. So, primary primarily your bond buyers are foreign governments or or foreign investors. So foreigners, China, Japan are the two biggest foreign investors in U.S. bonds. 
uh, you have domestic investors, so U.S. corporations, U.S. individuals, U.S. banks. Um, that's another big chunk of that uh, of that treasury bonds, and um, and then there's some other other folks in there. The the um, Social Security people actually buy some of them. That's one of those kind of weird internal accounting things. But um, you, you're right. So what happens? You have the normal supply and demand. So here's what happens in a normal bond market. If if I go out, I'm the United States, and I sell a, a whole bunch of bonds, and I start to oversell. I put too much supply out there. People start saying, eh, I don't know if I want any more of these things. What's going to happen when you have too much of a supply? The price drops, right? So when the federal government begins to uh, to sell too many bonds, there's too much outstanding debt. The price of that debt drops, and the interest that they have to pay rises. So did I just do that backwards? Let me let me think, let me think through this a second. Interest rises. Yes, the value of the bonds drop. So you're think, you have to think about this as an investment. So if the value of something is dropping that you're trying to invest in, you want the value to go up, you're not going to buy as much of it. So what happens is the interest rate has to rise in order to entice people to buy these less valuable bonds. And that causes the price of borrowing over here for the Fed to go up because they're having to pay more and more interest to entice people to take on the risk of buying these extra bonds. So you see bond prices tank and you see interest rates rise rapidly. That's not good for the government. It's, it's having to pay more and more and more and more just to get people to borrow the amount of money. So you know, in our scenario, um, that first $500, you may say, oh, you know, 1% would be cool. We get to that third or fourth $500, you're going to be like, dude, 10%. Well, that makes it difficult for me. I can't, you know, I can't pay that amount of interest. So that's where the Federal Reserve steps in. It basically goes in the open market and it buys bonds and puts them on its balance sheet. Um, so it's, it's, hang on a minute. So the, this this sounds crazy. It sounds <laughs> like you just said the federal government. So so the the Fed and the Treasury they're creating a bond, uh -huh. and now there's a lot of them out there. So the value of the bond. So let's say it's a million dollar bond, but it isn't really worth a million dollars. And so government foreign government X says, well, I'm interested in that, but your interest low, interest rates too low for my return. So I'm not willing to take on this risk. Oh, okay. Well, let's make the interest rate 15%. Oh, so government access, fine. I'll agree to buy this. But also, it sounds like you just said the federal government buys its own bonds. Well, see, and that's where you get this weird little thing that the Federal Reserve is not really the federal government. Well, that's weird. It's a private bank. Now... I take issue with people who, who try to say that they're completely separate entities because obviously you've got an institution that the federal government has created, that the federal government appoints the leadership to, that is bound by the rules that Congress sets for it. But on the other hand, it is an independent entity. It, it sets its own policies. Um, it actually has to pay interest. And, and, and so it's kind of autonomous and it's kind of not. It's this, this weird hybrid thing, right? 
And, and so that's exactly what it does, though. It buys those bonds from the federal government. And then what that does is it basically creates artificial demand. So what happens when you have higher demand for something? The price goes up and interest rates are inversely correlated with bond prices. So that interest rates goes down. So it creates artificially low interest rates. It entices more people in the open market to buy more bonds because the Fed is sucking up some of that demand and basically pulling those out of there. And so that allows the federal government to continue to lend more money at a cheaper interest rate because it's got the Fed over here that is, uh, in, in essence, um, soaking up demand. And the, the, the other fun part of it is that when the government pays interest to the Federal Reserve, the Federal Reserve is required by law to eventually pay that interest back to the federal government. <laughs> so it's, it's, a, it's a nice gig for the federal government, but, but that's how it works. So one more piece of this puzzle that we have to, to explain. Where does the Federal Reserve get the money to pay, you know, bondholder out here in the open market for this treasury bond. That's where you get the money printing. The Federal Reserve has the legal power to basically write a check for money it doesn't have. So it can go to uh, you know ABC Bank and say, hey, I want to buy a um, billion dollars worth of treasuries that you're holding. And uh, ABC Bank says, sure, well, I'd love to get these treasuries off my books. So the Federal Reserve writes them a check for a billion dollars. Bank gets a billion dollars. The Federal Reserve gets the billion dollars worth of treasuries. And voila, $1 billion was just created out of thin air, or as we say in common parlance, printed, even though it wasn't really printed in, on a physical printing press. So now ABC Bank's got this extra billion dollars that it can lend out and, and siphon out into the economy. That means you have more dollars, more fiat currency. Nobody's made any more stuff. Nobody's creating any more services. So therefore, the price of everything is going to rise as that new money goes into the economy. And that is really the essence of what we saw over the last two years in spades. So think about this, and, and to kind of put it in concrete terms, when coronavirus started, the U.S. government shut down the economy. And I say U.S. government, the state governments were primarily responsible for shutting down the economies. But regardless, the impact was that the U.S. economy ground to a halt. Everybody was sitting at home watching Netflix, not producing. So we have a huge drop in goods and services. So to keep the economy rolling, to keep the federal government, because you can't collect taxes when people aren't working. So the Federal Reserve steps in and it starts buying treasuries. And it does this for two reasons. Number one, it helps prop up the government spending that's about to come. And number two, it artificially suppresses interest rates. And when you have artificially low interest rates, that entices everybody to borrow more. So it's not just the federal government. It pushes down all interest rates so people can take out cheaper mortgages and they can borrow more money to start a business or they can run up their credit cards higher because the cost of credit is artificially low. So we did that um, during coronavirus. When we started, the Fed had about $4 trillion of bonds and mortgage-backed securities on its balance sheet. When we got done with the uh, coronavirus pandemic, 
the Federal Reserve had just shy of $9 trillion. So it created nearly $5 trillion, injected it into the economy, bought $5 trillion in bonds. And then the federal government took that money and it handed out STEMI checks, you know, because it can borrow money cheap. So it's borrowing, 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 and it's handing out money to you and me. And we're running out to the store and we're spending our money and there's no more stuff. So we've got all these people with all this money trying to buy stuff. We've got this huge level of demand and there's no supply. Oh my gosh, prices went up. Well, that's economics 101, my friend. So really, that's the essence of where we are today. That's how this whole system works. You've got the federal government borrowing money. You've got the Fed soaking up some of that demand, keeping interest rates low, allowing the federal government to borrow more money. And that money's floating around in the economy. And you end up with, you know, they say 9.2% inflation. It's really closer to 18 if it was measured honestly. And, um, and then you get into a situation where that's too much. I mean, at some point, you know, you get hyperinflation. They can't do that. So now they're trying to roll that back. They're trying to raise interest rates. They're trying to, to actually get some of those bonds off of the balance sheet. So let them get back into the economy. That means interest rates are going up. That means mortgage rates are going up. That means that it's more difficult to borrow money. It means that all of these artificial bubbles that were inflated because of all of this easy money are now starting to pop. And that's why we are now on uh, the brink of or in a recession. Uh, actually, we're in a recession, even though Joe Biden says we're not. So that's, right. that's, that's really it in a nutshell. Let me see if I can recap this to make sure I, I get my head around this because this is this this seems like a lot of moving parts, but see if I can make this really simple. So the Treasury says we're gonna make a bond for a billion dollars. And right. a banker says, Hey, you know, okay, I'll take I'll I'll give the I'll, maybe I'm adding too much to this. So the the Treasury makes this bond for a billion dollars. And it gets over to the Fed. Now, how it gets there, I think, is probably less important than the fact that it gets there. Right. Uh, well, and, the and I think I think I think you need to make it clear that it, that they're not. It's not like one billion dollar bond. It's like, um, you know, it's it's a hundred thousand million dollar. You know, the bond, right. the the amount of each bond. There's a lot of bonds that are at a at a, a certain amount. So okay. Uh, you know, uh, they, they have different different values, but um, it's a lot of bonds. So you've got a lot of bonds and the Federal Reserve is buying a lot of bonds and they get them. All right. So the, the, the bond, the bond bonds gets to the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve writes a check for these bonds, let's say five trillion dollars. Right. Write a check on an account that has no balance. They give the check for $5 trillion to Bank ABC. Bank ABC mm -hmm. goes and puts it into Bank DEF. And they say, okay, now you have a digital balance. No no actual pieces of paper, but you have a digital balance of $5 trillion. Now you can go and send digital balances to all of your best friends or whatever mm -hmm. happens, including right. those politicians who promised you, vote for me and I'll give you free stuff. Except now, no. <laughs> free is a very, very funny word. It's I do not think it means what you think it means. Right. And so this cycle begins. So now Bank DEF has this cash. Bank ABC has this cash. Oh, there's more bonds coming out of the Treasury. Let's take those over to the Federal Reserve. 
sell those, get more. So now this snake eating itself process is this just the circle of cash going around, cash and bonds being traded, right. creating currency out of thin air. Yep. That, it's a self-licking ice cream cone. Yes. I, that's that's one of your – I'm glad you used that. I forgot about that. I'm glad you did that. <laughs> it's, like, it's like American foreign policy. It's, it's, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. kind of the, it's kind of the same thing. But yeah, you, you, that's exactly right. So you have this endless process. You've got the Fed buying bonds and injecting money, cash, fiat currency into the system. The banks get it. They can go and, and they can buy more bonds and then they can sell them to the Fed because they know they've got ready buyers over here. So, you know, it creates all kinds of distortions and malinvestments in the economy because nothing is is operating as it should. It's it's important to understand that an interest rate is really nothing but a price. It's a price for money, right? It's how much it's it's kind of valued over time, but it's how much am I willing to pay today or how much am I willing to pay tomorrow for a dollar if I can have it today. So, you know, if if I'm willing to pay a buck 50 tomorrow to have the dollar today, then that 50 cents is is interest. So it's a price. Well, what happens when government starts messing with prices? You end up with all kinds of maladjustments, right? You rent controls or minimum wages, all of those type of things. You can see it happen. It distorts the market. So it's no different with money. When you start tinkering with the price of money, then it creates malinvestments. When the interest rate or the price of money is artificially low. People are demanding more money today. It's allowing them to invest in all of these projects. The problem is there's not enough stuff. So if you think about a guy, imagine for a minute you're building a house, right? And you're going to calculate, okay, I need, you know, I need a hundred thousand bricks and I need, uh, you know, four, 14 windows and I need roofing material. And you, you calculate all of these things and you have this, this artificially low interest rate and you go, well, I can borrow this much money and there's all this money out there. And then you start building the house and all of a sudden you run out of bricks because you've got all this money, but nobody ever accounted for how many bricks there actually were. The whole money thing distorts people's view of the economy. They stop looking at the actual stuff and they start looking at the fiat currency. So the house never gets built. You end up with a crash because they realize, oh crap, I can't build this house. So they just quit. They stop. They um, they take the bricks and go somewhere else. So that's why you see in the boom, all of this building and building and building. And then in the bust, things just get abandoned. There's actually a, um, an economist. I think it's Mark Thornton. Yeah, exactly. That has the skyscraper um, skyscraper theory that as you get into one of these artificial booms, you see more and more skyscrapers, more and more of this building. And uh, he has actually shown over time, if you look at the boom bus cycle, you can see like the tallest skyscraper ever made is usually built right before the crash. So it's not just the impact that it has on the finance of government and the way politicians work, which is per perverse in and of itself, but it distorts the entire economy and creates this, this boom and bust cycle that we live through. And eventually it's going to run out. You can only kick the can down the road so far until you run out of road. And, and I'm of the Borrow mind more money and make more road. Come on, Mike. <laughs> I'm I'm of the opinion that that we're getting really close to the end game here, uh, where we're going to either have to have the huge crash that's going to cleanse all of this out so we can start over again, or else they're going to have to go to hyperinflation, and we're basically going to be Zimbabwe, where 
the the currency becomes virtually valueless over time. So let's talk about the phrase malinvestment. Mal, of course, means bad. So bad mm-hmm. investments. And I think that's, and, and so I didn't, I, Mark Thornton came to me about two seconds before you asked for it, because I was thinking that's exactly the thing. Mark's book about skyscrapers is, is the, right. that skyscraper curse, that may not be the right name. Um, but that explains that. And so it, probably everybody has been in a major town and seen a housing complex or a shopping mall or a skyscraper or something that's not started and just abandoned. Right. And that's an example, an actual example of what malinvestment is, that they, the interest rates were too low, cash was too easily available, but there wasn't the stuff there to do the thing. Uh, and then... I think there's a lot of ways that it gets complicated fast, and that's not really the focus of this show. I think, but one of those things is that interest rates go up, and then you right. can't buy your stuff, you can't pay the right. labor. Right? Who knows? And there's maybe who knows? Maybe it's deliberately done just to not finish it. But that's I don't even begin to understand how that works. And that well, is- I think I think part of it is that you know there's this the Fed is walking this tightrope. Tight it wants to stimulate the economy. And so it can do that with easy money. And again, it blows up all kinds. Of, it, do, it doesn't just blow up consumer prices. It blows up asset prices, which everybody loves. So the stock market goes up. You know, real estate values go up. All of these things go up and up and up. And, and as we saw in uh, 2007, eventually they get to the point where, you know, obviously this house isn't worth that, right? And so the bubble pops. And when you start seeing the the inflation get to that level, then the Fed has to do the balancing act because it can't let the economy get quote unquote too hot. Hmm. So it's really when 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 it's keeps interest rates low for so long, eventually the economy is going to and they they use this term overheat, and so then that's when the Fed steps in and they start intentionally raising interest rates. The Fed has done that over the last several months. We've seen. Big rate increases, relatively speaking, of 75 basis points or three quarters of a percent uh, two months in a row because they realize that, oh, my God, we've created all of this inflation and it's causing prices to rise and we have to keep inflation. They have their target, you know, 2%. I don't know where they came up with 2%. It's the magic number of that's inflation supposed to be, according to the central planners. But so when it starts rising above that, they have to raise interest rates to keep the value of money from going too high. Well, they waited too long in this case, and they did too much. I think they overplayed their hand during the coronavirus pandemic. So they're intentionally crashing the economy, you know, Uh, and that's why they're trying to run around and tell you, no, 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 this isn't a recession. (laughs) This can't be a recession because they know that they have to keep raising rates in order to keep the, uh, the price pressures from inflation from going too high. But on the other hand, they're crashing the economy. So, you know, how, how long can they can they juggle those two balls in the air? I, I think, and I've said this uh, for the last couple of months, I think we're really at a crossroads where the Fed's going to have to make the choice. Are we going to really let the economy crash? And, and honestly, if, if we're going to have intervention, that's what they should let happen. We really need that cleansing in the economy that a recession would bring. But Politically, nobody wants a recession. So my gut is, as soon as they can find an excuse, as soon as they get the littlest sign that the price pressures are cooling, 
um, and that the, the recession is, you know, when they have to actually admit that there's a recession, I think they're going to go right back to what they were doing before. They're going to cut interest rates and they're going to start buying bonds again because that's the fork it knows. That's what I think is going to happen. Now, I could be wrong. You know, we could find that Jerome Powell has a bigger, you know, what's than anybody thinks. Uh, maybe he'll turn into a Paul Volcker who took interest rates to 20, 21 percent to slay inflation in, in the early 80s. I don't think Powell I has that. So. Anymore, no. <laughs> I, I don't think. He does. So I really think, I think we'll see inflation cool. Um, the price inflation, I think we'll see even in the uh, July numbers with the gas prices, oil prices having gone down. I think that's going to be the excuse. I, I, I said this um, on the uh, shift gold podcast last week that I really think that this could be the last interest rate hike of this cycle, that they're going to look for that excuse to back off of it. So oh, then, we'll, well, then, then we'll see prices start going up again because that's what they do. I think on November 9th, everything will change. What's November? Is it, oh, is day that after the election? Uh, day after that's, election. Yeah. Well, it could be. Yeah. Um, let's go. I'm going to move to the banks for a minute. And yeah. So in in simplified scenario, a bank ABC paid the Fed for the bonds. They got the trillion dollars of cash of of, mm -hmm. of a check, and now they have all these digits. Now there's this becomes really challenging for me to explain to my kids, and so I'm not I I understand the words, but not entirely the process. And the the mm -hmm. concept is the first recipients. So ABC and Bank DEF, their board of directors, their favorite contractors, their favorite politicians, somebody is getting first access to this cash. Right. And then so the construction, that's the easy part is the construction company is then taking this cash. They're going to go, not really, they're not going to go, they're going to go to Home Depot. They're going to buy the drywall, the nails, the wood, the roofing materials. They're going to hire the, they're going to subcontractors to do all this work. And they get this cash. Then the subcontractors and Home Depot employees are going to go to the local supermarkets and the shoe stores. And this cash now makes its way through the economy. Now, it doesn't happen that fast. It takes a while. Right. But- how is it that those first recipients of the cash have are, are getting more value per dollar than when it ends up at the clerk at the grocery store's payroll check? And that six yeah. months later, she has the same X amount of dollars, except it doesn't buy as much. I mean, everybody can exactly. say, man, like, I got paid the same three fifty this week or five fifty or two thousand dollars, but holy crap, my one layer of stuff in my grocery cart is eighty-five dollars. Last year it was forty bucks. What's so that that's a lot there. And the real question is, how does the value decrease as it moves from first recipients to second, third, and fourth? That's a great question. Okay, so You've got, uh, let's let's say everything's in equilibrium right now. You've got, you know, X number of dollars in the economy and you have X amount of goods and services and you've got exchanges going on. So you've got kind of an equilibrium and, and prices are at this level. Let's say prices, we'll just, we'll talk engineers. So we'll say prices are a buck. So 
you know, prices are a buck and, and, and you're making a buck in your wages and everything's kind of in this equilibrium. And then all of a sudden, here comes the Fed and it dumps, you know, a trillion dollars into Bank ABC. And Bank ABC gets to hand that out to um, its, its preferred people, the first recipients, which, you know, amazingly, it always seems to be the first people to get this are the, the people with government connections, right? Government contractors and all that. But It's amazing. Um, that's, yeah. Be skeptical of that. But be that as it may, so all of a sudden, these people have this extra money, right? So you've got things over here that are a dollar, and you've got this guy over here that has this huge pile of money, and they start spending that money into, into the economy. Now, they're still paying that $1 price, right? But as, they begin, as that money begins to work into the economy, and more and more people have access to it, then all of a sudden there's more demand, right? Having all that money, it boosts the demand for the goods. When demand goes up, prices go up as well. So all of a sudden there's this over here, they're seeing, oh, we've got more demand for our things. Uh, we're going to have to raise prices 10 cents. And so now all of a sudden, you know, these people still have this extra pile of money, and, but now prices are a little more, but they can still get more than they could before. So eventually it works through the economy and, and at some point, you know, that gets into my paycheck and your paycheck. And by the time it's all said and done, we have a new equilibrium, but now prices are $2 and everybody's getting $2 because it's really the same amount of stuff, right? So those first people to get the money were able to buy things when they were still a dollar. By the time it gets to you and me, that stuff is now $2 and so we're no better off. So that's where the first recipients of the money really gain from inflation. And we can see that if you look at the at the data right now, um, prices are up. We'll use the government numbers, which are BS, but we'll just use it for the sake of argument. CPI is 9.2%. Wages have increased about 5%. So therefore, your real wages, what you can actually buy, has decreased 4%. Now, the people that already have that money in their pocket, their buying power hasn't decreased at all. They're better off. You're worse off. That's the pernicious, perniciousness of inflation. It robs the poor and the middle class, and it benefits the people who have, have access to that first money. Let's take a moment out for a word from Jake about his Tasting Anarchy podcast. Hey everyone, Jake here, host of the Tasting Anarchy podcast. Join my co-host Mason and I each week as we explore the world of wine and alcohol through a liberty lens. You can find us on all your major podcatchers, tastinganarchy.com or Tasting Anarchy on Twitter. Tasting Anarchy, your wine and liberty podcast. Find out how much government is in your drink. All right, so... That's a good place to move to this word inflation. And I know you've covered this on the Shift Gold podcast yeah. probably each week for the last month. Um, and it's, e it's easy to misunderstand because we can sort of see the prices go up. So obviously the prices increasing is inflation. We think about Think about a price like a balloon. The more you blow into a balloon, it inflates the balloon, inflates the prices. That makes perfect sense, except it's not right. Right. The so let's talk about how 
looking at the price going up is a symptom of or a result of what is the proper inflation and tell us what is actually inflation. Okay. If you go look in a dictionary that was published in, say, 1970, you will find that I'm actually going to pull it up and I'm going to read it to you because this is extremely, extremely important. And this is something that government loves to do. We, it loves to change definitions of things in order to hide its culpability for the things that it does. So the latest example is, you know, for the last however many years, in, uh, a recession has been two consecutive drops in GDP. Now, all of a sudden, we've got the White House running around. No, no, no. That doesn't mean we're technically in a recession. You know, So we can change the definition in order to cover up our culpability for things. Um, let's see. So let me pull up here the definition of inflation, 1970s dictionary. A sharp increase in the amount of money and credit causing advances in the price level. So the inflation isn't the price going up. The inflation is the money supply going up, which is the result of what we've talked about already. The Federal Reserve creating money and injecting it into the economy and the government spending it into the economy. The symptom of inflation, that increase of the money supply, is a rise in prices, a general rise in prices, which is important. It's not just a few prices here and there. It's the general overall raising of prices that we've talked about, again, with the first with the first uh, people with the money having the biggest benefit. Eventually, it all does balance out. So that's key to understand because if you're just defining inflation as a symptom of inflation, the rising prices, then the government can say, oh, it's Putin's fault, or oh, it's greedy corporations causing inflation, or oh, it's supply chain issues, or oh, it's voodoo, you know. No, it's not. It's because you guys keep creating money and they can hide that from us. And that's exactly why they've redefined the definition of inflation. Now, there are other things that cause prices to rise. Um, and and it's, it's easy, again, to obscure that. You know, for instance, if oil prices rise just because of a supply shock, then that's going to trickle into the economy as well, you know, because energy is is used in so many different parts of the uh, of the economy. But whenever you have a supply shock that causes price increases, you're going to see prices go down somewhere else in the economy if there isn't an increase in the money supply to boost it up. So inflation is an expansion of the money supply that causes a general rise in prices. So, you know, general rise in prices, it may go up. 8%. Some prices are going to go up even more than that. Some prices might go up less because there's all kinds of other factors in the economy. But this general, you know, think of it as the tide. If the tide goes up, it pushes all of the boats up a certain level. And then you might have a wave that rolls through and it might take this boat higher and drop this boat lower. But that general tide level is what you get from inflation. Okay. So we talked about the Fed writing a check on an account that has no cash, Bank ABC <laughs> depositing that, and then into Bank DEF. Now, there's, I think, a second way, and almost certainly more confusing and also more nefarious, a different way, another way that 
currency can be created. And this mm-hmm. is this is <laughs> really hard to imagine. It's 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 a tough idea to grasp if you've never heard it, and it sort of explains itself. But you say, well, "What are you talking about?" It's called fractional reserve lending. Right. So I'm going to take a hundred dollars, put it in put it in Meharry National Bank, and Meharry National Bank let's just say ten percent. It's going to keep ten dollars of that hundred and lend ninety of that. Except I'm not the only depositor that day. There's 50 depositors, and we're all giving $100. And every time that happens, Meharry National Bank is lending 90 of that 100 to somebody else. And they're going to take that 90, go to their bank, because they want to go buy a car. And you don't buy a car with $90. You're going to buy four ounces of Wagyu beef. Who knows? And... So 10% of that $90 is going to be held by the other bank and whatever that difference is, is being lent out. And all along the way, this is creating more currency. Uh So that, that hundred dollars of mine can be at, at the point of going from bank to bank to bank and more and more banks and more and more lenders is up to like a thousand dollars of invented printed out of thin air currency. Right. Now it becomes like, holy majoli, this is insane. How is cash actually even worth the papers printed on? Yeah. You know, back in the day, there was there was some check on fractional reserve banking. And there's a lot of debate even among, uh, you know, uh, Austrian economists and libertarians about whether uh, fractional reserve banking should be allowed. Um, the The kind of check was a bank run. You know, at, at some point, uh, if, if enough people come and demand their deposits and they've lent all of this money out uh, and they don't have the cash on hand and the bank fails. Um, and of course, that's a, a very crude, blunt instrument and, and hurts a lot of people, which is why you know they've tried to make that so it doesn't happen. But that is the check on fractional reserve banking. But yeah, this does indeed increase the money supply in the same way. And of course, the Fed exacerbates it when they lower interest rates um, it allows banks to lend even more money, um, and, and we saw this with the housing market back in two thousand and seven, two thousand and six, um, when you know there was all kinds of money to lend, and they lowered lending standards, and, and banks got overextended, and then you know here comes the powers to be to bail them out. Um, so, I don't think fractional reserve banking is as pernicious as allowing the Federal Reserve to simply create things out of thin air, because I think. With the absence of those government regulations and that safety net, banks would be much more reluctant to abuse the fractional reserve uh, privilege. Um, but you know, again, other people will debate that, and and that's a that's a debate among among many economists of our ilk about whether it's a good <laughs> thing or a bad thing. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a, a a bit above my uh, knowledge level, but it, it's, yeah, it's that's above my pay grade too. But it, it's just it's. It's a pretty interesting thing to to at least consider that when you go deposit, well, you most people have it done, I suppose, just electronically, but still, your paycheck is, think of 10% of that as being held by the bank, the rest of it is being lent out to somebody else for some other reason, and it becomes, right. it's, don't think long on it because it's enough to make you crazy. Right. They are banking on the fact, you see what I did there? Mm-hmm. Um, that you're not going to come back for your money, that everybody's not going to come back at your money for their money at the same time. So, 
here we are. Yes. All right. I th- now the, the the whole topic matter for today is is not going to be exhausted in a podcast episode, not even no. a ten hour podcast episode, and we're not going ten hours. So, <laughs> but um, I, I really wanted to sort of get a handle on. Especially now, since we're being the the recession thing is funny because the talking points in every and they all say the same thing. It's not it's not only two quarters of negative growth. It's also all these other factors, and not one person has identified any one of these other factors. Well- they point to one thing, the one Labor. thing that you're banking. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's the one thing that you're banking on right now. They can say, well, look, the labor market is strong. We can't possibly be in a recession. Of course, I keep saying over and over again, the labor market is a lagging indicator. Companies don't start laying people off until they see that their sales are dropping, until they see the impact of the recession on their businesses. So the layoffs come after the recession is already underway. So, you know, they can keep pointing at that. I, I'm, I'm seeing, uh, the, you know, all of the latest labor data is starting to show softening, softening, softening. We had, um, if you look at the four-month moving average of the um, uh, weekly jobless claims, that's actually rising. Uh, so, yeah, that's not even looking so good. But they're going to hold on to that as long as they can. What they're really trying to do, in my opinion, is they're trying to limp things along far enough so that the Fed can pivot and get out of this tightening monetary policy. So they can kind of hope that they can let inflation go and then they can start blowing the uh, economic bubbles back again. You know, it's an endless cycle. They're constantly blowing up bubbles, then the bubbles pop, and then they have to blow more air into them, and then the bubbles pop, and then they blow more air into them, and the bubbles pop. The the $64,000 question is, at what point can they no longer reinflate the bubbles? That's where we're in some some pretty deep doo-doo. When when does the next quarter end? Uh, So we're just now starting... Let's see. May, June. So we're. This is the first month of this quarter. So June, July, uh, July, August, September. So the end of September will be the end of Q3. I'm just trying to figure out how. I'm. I'm very interested to see, and I'm going to be amused by the song and dance number we get at the end of September about <laughs> what it is. The definitions mean. I'd be curious. Oh, no, it's gonna. It's gonna be. Oh crap! We're in a recession. We need to cut interest rates. We need to print more money. We're gonna rescue the economy. That's that's what that's gonna be, in my opinion. Uh, oh, great. Um, I, I could be. I could be wrong. I mean, you know, I'm not. I don't have a crystal ball here. And again, Jerome Powell could surprise us all, and he could come in and and really be the tough guy that he claims to be. But uh, yeah. not not betting <laughs> on that. Um, yeah. You you made a comment, and, and I think it's important to talk about this, at least mention this, and I, I think I got this right, and, and that is that you're going to issue, when we talked about the, the beginning about issuing bonds, I'm, it's taxing your kids. Yeah. I, I, th- I, I think it's important, and, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but I, th- I got the idea that when we're paying taxes, we're not paying taxes into the future. We're paying taxes into the past and stuff that has already been, quote unquote, paid for or spent 
So in April of next year, we're paying taxes for what our politicians gave us for free in 2022 and 2021 and 2020 because they, they, whoever they are, tends to spread these things out over 10 year periods. So I, I, the idea of paying taxes in the rears is kind of a big deal. I think that that's important to recognize the taxes that we're all paying in April is stuff that we've already used. We've already consumed right. it. It's, it's just like a credit card. Up. Yeah. Right. It's just exactly like a credit card. It's, it's a big government credit card. And um, we have to pay the credit card bill. And you're exactly right. You know, it's, it's, it's like, you know, uh, if, if I buy a computer on my credit card, um, you know, three years later, I'm still paying for that computer. The computer may be broken, you know, <laughs> but, uh, but I'm still paying for it. So, and, and I think it's also important to people, for people to make or to understand that inflation is a tax. The prices that you're paying right now are part of the cost of all of those great stimulus checks you got under Trump and Biden. Everybody loved it when we got free money. Well, the money's not free. You're paying for it now every time you go to the grocery store, every time you go to the hardware store, every time you go to the mall, um, you know, every time you go to the gas tank. All of that is, is the inflation tax. There is no free lunch. Government always has to be paid for. It's going to be paid for in one of three ways, direct taxation, taxation into the future, or the inflation tax. That's it. There's no other way for it. There is nothing that's free. And so now we've got the Biden administration around, oh, we're going to have the, what do they call it, the Inflation Reduction Act, and this is going to make inflation go. No, government spending more money is not going to make inflation go down. You can mark that, you can mark my words, but that's what they're going to tell you because, you know, again, we've redefined the definition of everything and most people are economically illiterate. I mean, let's be honest, a lot of people can't even balance their own checkbook, much less understand that the Federal Reserve and the U.S. government are stealing the value of their money every day. And that's really the bottom line of what's going on here. You are being robbed blind by central bankers and politicians. Yes, that's true. And I th- the, the thing I wanted to bring up, because the second part of taxing in the rears that occurred to me was when Lizzie is spouting her nonsense about making the billionaires pay their fair share Fair share of what? They've already used the thing. Right. So it's it's just really it's a way to deny culpability, to shift blame from the politicians who promise you free stuff and blame you can you can hate Steve John well, he's dead. Um Bezos or Gates. Well, they go ahead right. and hate Bill Gates, that's fine. Um, Elon Musk. Elon, you can hate him all you want, but you can't tax them enough to satisfy the politicians' greed to give you more free crap. That's yeah. just it's not possible. I did and, I did the math one time, and this is this has been years ago, so you know the numbers may be a little bit different. But basically, sum it up: you could take every dollar from every billionaire in the United States. And that would be enough money to fund the U.S. government for about six months. And it never occurs to anybody to have less U.S. government, to have fewer promises. No, 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 no. That, that. And, and, and therein is the only solution to this problem. All right. Well, that feels like a good place to end this part. Um, I, I hope 
dear listener, that <laughs> there's a lot going on here, and that's okay. You have to, it's okay to say I'm still confused because it, it took. You know, I I got into studying economics barely. I mean, I'm I'm I'm, I'm <laughs> just dabble at it. And it took me a while to get this straightened out. So it's okay if it's like this doesn't make sense. But I hope at least on some level that the recognition of the Treasury and the Federal Reserve working together with conjunction of the federal government and Congress and doing all of this, well, it's an ugly word, but sort of incestuous stuff is really causing a big problem. And, and yeah. if, if, if that's what you took away from this episode, then that's a success. That's um, the summation. And, and I'll give you know, folks, if you want a re- resource, um, yes. you know, like you said, I've been, I've been writing about this pretty much on a daily basis for the last, you know, five, six years. And I'm still learning new stuff every day. So you're not going to understand something as complex as macroeconomics in one podcast or reading one book. Um, but if you follow my work over at shiftgold.com slash news, you don't have to buy any gold unless you want to, you know, they'll sell you some, but, uh, but if you follow that, read the articles Listen to the Friday Gold Wrap podcast. It'll begin to sink in because I say these same things over and over and over again because it's by repetition that you begin to grasp, okay, I get the way this is cycling through. So, um, you know, free free resource over there at shiftgold.com. And, um, you know, I write a couple of articles every day uh, during the week. So check it out. I will put a link to that now. I don't follow the news. I listen to your... Shift Gold show. I haven't followed the news. I think I might have to start doing that. Um, and yeah. I'll put a link to that on today's show notes page, which is culinarylibertarian.com slash 206. Um, so um, do you have still a few minutes to hang around for the chef table? I would be happy to do that. Oh, well, man, that's the best answer I've gotten yet. <laughs> All right. Well, let's, uh, okay, we'll say goodbye here. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right, folks, that's going to do it. I'll add the Tenth Amendment Central link and the Shift Gold link to the show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 206. Uh, both of those places, Tenth Amendment, probably less so for economics, but a little bit. And certainly Shift Gold will give you some information about gold and money. And, uh, and Peter does a pretty bang-up job uh, for his part. There are scores of resources about money and currency and business cycles and all of it. The Mark Thornton book we mentioned is one, and Murray Rothbard's What Has the Government Done to Our Money is another. I'll add a link to the Rothbard book to the show notes page. Uh, Murray gives a good background of what money is and why currency isn't money, and then a whole lot more. Maybe the best thing about Rothbard's writing is he's plain and clear. He explains concept. He explains complex issues so even I can understand them. And just for your continuing education, I'll add a link to Mises.org. There you'll find scores of articles and links to ebooks and physical books on money and economics and things you didn't even know people wrote about. Thank you for listening. I appreciate you being here. And thanks also to my Patreon supporters. Mike's chef table portion is up on the Patreon in the 
in the supporters section. Become a patron to hear Mike's portion and the other chef tables, chef's table portions at culinarylibertarian.com slash support. Have a good week and I'll see you soon. Music for the Culinary Libertarian podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com.